And Father, as we now come to your word, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is sufficient. We thank you that it is inspired. And with all these things, it is more trustworthy than our own minds. And so we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would use your word today to strengthen us, to encourage us, to convict us, to direct us, to help us understand the world around us. And we pray, Lord, for our children who are with us. We also pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that, um, that, they would be made, that we would be faithful to, to have made them into good disciples, faithful disciples. Um, all for Christ's glory. Use this time now for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I had said earlier, you may want to keep uh, a thumb in Daniel chapter 6 because we will be ending up there today. But the main text that we're going to be looking at today is Romans chapter 13. So um, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 in Romans 13. So if, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Romans 13. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer on the, on the counter. Uh, this morning, I woke up to, the, to a headline that uh, I guess I shouldn't be, say I'm surprised by, but I was still kind of shocked by. The headline said that there were six elders of a church in Canada that were being charged with the heinous crime of conducting church services during the lockdown. And that's Canada, I get it. It's a totally different nation, and yet it's very close to home, isn't it? Canada isn't all that different from the United States, at least ideologically. This is the response that those elders drafted uh, to the governing authorities. I'm just going to read you a part of it because it was kind of long. But there was one part that really stood out to me as uh, very timely and relevant for churches around the world, particularly in regions where churches have been locked down. They said this in one part of their response. They said, Our Savior shed his blood to purchase the church, and therefore deeming the church unessential is tantamount to deeming the blood of Christ unessential, which is a public act of blasphemy. One day our elected officials, bureaucrats, and police will stand before the court of God's justice for these acts. We earnestly pray that the Holy Spirit would draw them to his Son, Jesus Christ, who offers free grace and forgiveness to all who would repent and put their faith in him. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and therefore we must honor and obey him above all earthly governments. It's a pretty strong statement. Well, for the last 10 years that I've served here at, as the pastor at New Beginnings Church, it's been our tradition that we would start every year off uh, with me preaching a topical sermon, a sermon on something uh, that, that relates to the life of the church, something that gives us direction, something that gives us guidance, uh, a particular subject that is particularly relevant to us in any given year. And this year I want to use 
our first sermon of the year, to talk about a church that has existed, actually, you might say even throughout the ages, one that goes back thousands and thousands of years, and which has existed in various forms and in various locations throughout the world. I'm talking about what is referred to as the underground church. The underground church. Now, if you're, if you're not familiar with what that is, if you don't know what the underground church is, it's the church that exists in places where there is so much hostility toward the gospel of Jesus Christ and toward his people that the Christians in that location must gather to worship privately, secretly. What that usually means is that there are Christians who are meeting secretly in in, uh, residential homes or in basements, although there have also been times when, uh, you know, it's been more, even more remote than that. Sometimes it's even existed in caves and other places far away from civilization. For example, in China, during Mao's revolution, it was illegal to be a Christian, And thus the Christians would congregate and worship in caves out in the countryside and in other various remote locations. The persecution in China was strong for a long time. It it did ease for many years. From, From the 90s to the 2010s, persecution in China did ease fairly considerably. But in just the past two years, that easing of persecution has rapidly reverted to what it once was and now much of the, uh, the Chinese church once again must worship underground. The underground church doesn't only exist in China, however. It's existed in Russia. It's existed in the Middle East and still does. And it's, in, it's existed in many other places where being caught worshiping the one true living God could land a person in a prison camp for many years. Or it could even cost a person their life. It's existed in Europe, where the reformers were burned at the stake for refusing to yield to the governing authorities, and where John Bunyan even spent 12 years in prison because he refused to partner with the state. John Bunyan's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote it in prison. So let me be clear from the outset about why the underground church exists, and and, and exists today, and has always existed in places where worshiping God is either forbidden or where Christians are persecuted unto death. The underground church exists because Christians have an obligation both to God, first and foremost, and to man to defy tyranny. Let me say that again. The underground church exists because Christians have an obligation to God and man to defy tyranny. It exists because nobody in all the world, in all of human existence, has the right to demand that God's people not gather to worship him in the manner that he has instructed. Now, I get it. It's hard for us to to wrap our minds around this. This is a very foreign concept to us. It's hard to imagine that the church in our country would ever be forced underground. It's it's historically unprecedented. We're one of the only nations that I know of that has never had a church that was forced underground. And yet, 
given what has happened over the course of the past year and given the direction that this nation has been headed for at least the last 10 years, I won't be surprised if we are forced to go underground very soon. I never wanted to say that in a sermon, by the way. But I won't be surprised if we are forced underground in our country very soon. And I don't want you to be surprised by that either. Throughout the history of our nation, there's been a long history of peacefulness between the church and the state. But we should understand that historically speaking, this has been a very, very unique situation. Historically, the church has regularly been persecuted, usually due in large part to the mixing of church and state. And our country's founding fathers realized that. And that's why there is the First Amendment. It's designed to keep the church and state separated. And throughout American history, there has therefore been peace between the church and state, and Christians have always in our country been able to freely gather and worship until 2020 came along. In 2020, COVID-19 hit our country, and churches in many states were advised to close, and churches in other states like ours were demanded that we close. Churches here in Washington were instructed to close. We weren't even allowed to have drive-in services at first, if you remember that. And yet, you could go to Walmart and park your car next to somebody. No big deal. But you can't go and park at a church and listen to a sermon. Millions of people are going to die within a couple months, we were told, right? We need 15 days to flatten the curve, we were told. And closing down for a couple weeks seemed fairly reasonable. But many larger churches, before too long, started announcing that they were actually just going to close down for the rest of the year. And suddenly there was all this discussion going on, especially on social media, about whether or not every church should just Closed down for the year. And there are many vocal people coming forward saying that shutting churches down voluntarily was what was required for us to love our neighbors well. One megachurch pastor, I won't mention him by name, one megachurch pastor argued that we should lay down our rights to gather and worship since Jesus himself modeled that for us by giving up his rights as God, humbling himself and taking on human flesh. Now that's really a horrible argument, actually. Jesus never, ever, 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 ever disobeyed God in humbling himself and surrendering his personal rights. And yet, for a perfectly healthy person who isn't vulnerable, to stop gathering to worship is disobedience to God. It is sin. Now, there's one passage in particular that really gained a lot of traction in this discussion from the other side, the people who are saying all churches should just be closed. That passage is Romans 13, which instructs us to submit to the governing authorities. And on the surface, that might appear to be a very, very uh, solid argument, a convincing argument, but we're going to look at it today. And as we look at it today, what I hope to show you is that neither the government nor any other power that be has the authority to instruct us to do what God has forbidden, 
nor do they have the authority to forbid us from doing as God has instructed. Neither the government nor any other power that be has the authority to instruct us to do what God has forbidden, nor does anyone have the authority to forbid us doing what God has instructed. Now, one of the worst things that you can do when you turn to Scripture for answers and for clarity is to isolate a text from its greater context, right? So let's understand the context of Romans 13 before we dig in and start studying it. We have to begin by understanding not only why Paul included this passage, we want to understand why he included it, but we also want to understand why he put it exactly where he did in the text, in the book of Romans. So just to give you a brief rundown of, of the way Romans is structured, Paul spends the first two and a half chapters demonstrating that every human being who has ever existed has fallen short of God's holy standard of righteousness and is thus worthy of his wrath. Between the middle of chapter 3 and the end of chapter 8, Paul uh, explains that the only solution for sin, the, the only way to be saved from the penalty of sin, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These chapters are covering what you would call justification, how a person is found righteous in God's sight. Paul also discusses in in chapter 8 the certainty of God accomplishing everything that he has ordained. And that concept then gets fleshed out and illustrated in Israel's history between chapters 9 and 11. Then we get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, that's where Paul really switches gears drastically. He's already covered justification. He's already covered how sinners are brought into fellowship with God, how we are forgiven of our sins. And then starting in chapter 12, Paul starts a discourse on sanctification. He's covered justification. Now he's talking about sanctification. Justification is being released from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being released from the power of sin. So in other words, from chapter 12 on, Paul is writing about how we should live as Christians in light of the reality that we have been brought into fellowship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So we've been saved, we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed. Great. Now, how should we live? That's the question that Paul is answering from chapter 12 onward. And chapter 13 has everything to do with how we should live in light of the reality that we've been brought into fellowship with God. Chapter 13 is there because it would have been really easy, perhaps natural, for somebody to have said, you know, great, I'm, I'm covered by the new covenant and, and I'm freed from the law of God. You know, at least in one function, at least in its function uh, of condemning us. Uh, so you can imagine somebody saying, you know, Jesus has set me free, I'm in him, I'm free indeed, and if God's law uh, no longer condemns me, then surely no law conceived by a person or a man or a governor or a king has authority over me. And Romans 13 is Paul's way of saying, not so fast. So before we look at Romans 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. 1 to 7. I think it's important to note that Paul spends two entire chapters, chapters 13 and 14, explaining for us that while, yes, we are, 
we're free from the condemnation of the law of God, that doesn't mean that our liberty in Christ is a license to sin. It's not a license for licentious living. It doesn't mean that we can live without any type of restraint whatsoever. So along with our freedom in Christ comes certain rights and responsibilities, uh, obligations uh, that we have for living. And so the purpose of this passage is to show us that God is sovereign over earthly authorities. They serve a good and a pure purpose in God's economy. And because God has ordained the civil authorities, or, or civil magistrate, whichever you prefer, because he has ordained the civil authorities, Christians don't have the right to set themselves above the law. We don't have the right to set ourselves above the civil magistrate that God has ordained. And yet, let's understand this much before we jump in. And yet the early church, the first century church, including the apostles, and even including Paul who wrote this passage, the first century church was persecuted and fed to lions and put to death by the civil authorities because they defied the civil magistrate. So, indeed, we can be sure that the first century church, they were forced to go underground. So we can be clear about this much. Paul is not saying in Romans 13 here that we should just cheerfully submit to whatever the civil magistrate instructs us to do. Far be that from being the case. So what is Paul saying here in Romans chapter 13? When do we obey? When do we defy? Where do we, where do we draw the line? So let's look at that. Let's look at this passage and see if we can find some answers here. Let's look at Romans 13, 1 to 7 together. Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive just condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Very interesting passage. Very informative and thorough passage. He starts by saying every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And if we were to just stop right there and read no further, don't look at the context or anything, just those words right there. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. If that was all there was, if that was all that Paul had to say about the matter, then we would have to concede that indeed we do have an obligation to do whatever the government says. 
Because whatever Scripture says goes, right? Whatever Scripture says is what we yield to, right? doesn't mean we're going to like it. It just means that that's what's right. It doesn't mean that we're going to understand it. It just means that that's what's true. So no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, if Scripture says something, we yield to it, right? No question. So if this had been all that Paul had to say about this issue, we would be disobeying God if we were to defy the state, regardless of what the state demands of us. But Paul continues, first by telling us why we must be in subjection to the governing authorities. He says this, he says, for, in other words, because, it's related to the first, uh, first clause, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now we have to understand that God has established different levels, if you will, of authority, different types of authority. First, he has established the family, where fathers are head of the household. Secondly, he has established the civil uh, authorities, the, the governing authorities. And thirdly, he has established the highest uh, magistrate in the world, the church, of which Christ is the head. Christ is the head, not Caesar, not a governor, not a king, not a president, not a Supreme Court justice. Christ is the head of the church. He has all authority over the church. Now, every one of these authorities, or magistrates, if you will, has a role. They have a specific function that God has designed for them to have in order for society to function correctly, all for the good of society. And each of these magistrates derives its authority from, what the, uh, from God, from the authority that God has given to them. They don't get it from themselves. That's not where anybody's authority comes from. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. All authority is derived from God. In other words, God has given each one of the magistrates power to enforce rules and laws, but none of them have the freedom to execute authority that defies God's law. And so to that end, God ordains and God establishes earthly leaders, rulers, governors, kings. On the surface, it might look like we appoint them, but it's God who ordains them and appoints them to their earthly governing positions. And they are to rule in accord with the authority given to that particular magistrate. Paul continues. He says, therefore, in other words, in light of what he has just established in verse 1, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, we need to understand that Paul is describing a governing authority. Uh, he's, a, he's talking about a civil magistrate that is operating within the guidelines and the authority that God has established for the civil magistrate. In other words, this is describing a government that is exercising only the authority that God has specifically granted to them. So neither the lower magistrate, neither the family, nor the civil magistrate are interfering with the greater magistrate, which is 
the church. That's the highest magistrate. And likewise, the church isn't uh, usurping the authority or the functions that were given to the family or to the government. Everybody is staying in their lane, so to speak. That's what Paul is describing here. A government that is staying within their lane. How do we know that that's what Paul's describing here? Stick around, because we're going to get to it very shortly. But Paul says that if you resist the governing authorities when they're operating within their God-given parameters, when they're staying within their lane, you're opposing the ordinance of God and are worthy of the government's condemnation. In other words, Christians aren't rebels. Christians aren't anarchists. We're not lawless. We're not people who refuse to submit to any governing authority no matter what. That's not us. That's not what we're called to be. We have an obligation to comply with a government that is ruling rightly and justly, staying within their lane. When the governing authorities go outside of their lane, when they exceed the limits of their authority, that's when they become what we would call tyrants. Tyrants. Francis Schaeffer writes this. He says, quote, The state is to be an agent of justice to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good in society. By the way, who defines what's good and wrong? Who defines what's evil and what isn't? God. Only God, right? God is the only objective standard of morality. And so only God has the authority to determine that something is right and the authority to determine that something else is wrong. And a story. Schaefer continues. He says, quote, when it does the reverse, in other words, remember, he was talking about the, the, the state uh, protecting those who do good and punishing evildoers. He says, when it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then a usurped authority and as such becomes lawless and is a tyranny, end quote. So before we continue, allow me to simply say that if we were to take these first two verses in Romans 13 to mean that it's always wrong for a Christian to oppose the government, we will immediately find ourselves completely at odds with the whole testimony of Scripture, with some very significant portions of Scripture. And anytime that happens, anytime you interpret a verse to mean something that's clearly contradicted elsewhere in Scripture, you are not understanding that one part. Right? Anytime that happens, anytime there's a, there's a, a contra- there appears to be a contradiction, you're not understanding one or the other or, or both correctly because Scripture never contradicts itself. Consider, for example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, commanded uh, the, the Hebrew midwives to murder the sons of Hebrew wives, of, of women giving birth to males. Does God condone such an action? Does he condone murdering a child? Of course not. Of course not. That's, that's murder. And so the Pharaoh who commanded this was outside of his lane. Right? He was ruling in a way that exceeded the authority that God had granted to that office. But what did the Hebrew midwives do in light of this instruction? They defied the order. They didn't play along. They didn't do it. 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And the fact that God approved of this and even rewarded this is reflected in what we see then in verse 20, which says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Now you might say, well, God wasn't really rewarding them. That's just how nature plays out. No, the Bible says God was good to them. That was their reward for disobeying Pharaoh, for defying Pharaoh. What about Rahab, the harlot who saved the lives of the, of the Hebrew spies? She's even found in the 11th chapter of Hebrews as an example, a textbook example of a faithful servant. She defied her own civil magistrate in order to save lives and would have been considered treasonous. She would have been considered a traitor by her people. And yet God commends her, both for her faith and for her work. So no, Romans 13 is very clearly not saying that we should just roll over and do whatever the governing authorities tell us to do. If the governing authorities instruct us to do what God forbids, or if they forbid us from doing what God instructs, That is tyranny. And we have a moral obligation to defy the civil authorities. That theme is found throughout the Old Testament. But we also see it in the New Testament as well. Consider what Peter said when he was brought before the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5. They had arrested him and the other apostles for preaching the gospel. And they end up bringing Peter before the council, and they say this to him. They say, we gave you strict orders not to continue preaching in this name, in Jesus' name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But then we read this. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That principle right there, we must obey God rather than men. That principle is binding on every single person on the face of the earth, every human being. But how much more binding is it on us as Christians? Paul continues in Romans 13, writing in verses 3 and 4. He says, For rulers, again explaining, because for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is where it becomes extremely, extremely clear, very obvious that Paul is talking about a governing authority, a civil civil magistrate that is staying in their lane, that is staying within the limitations of the authority that God has ordained to that office. A government that is operating properly is not a government to be afraid of unless you're doing What's evil? Unless you're doing what is wrong. Now again, wrong by whose standards? By God's standards. His standards are the only standard of what is good and what is evil. When civil magistrates are operating properly in accordance with 
God's word, it is, Paul says, a minister of God. Their function, their proper function, is to protect those who do good and to punish those who do evil. In other words, the civil magistrate only has the authority that God has given to them. That's what Paul means when he wrote in verse 1 that there is no authority except from God. The civil magistrate only has the authority that God has given them. The civil magistrate is not free to make up their own rules. They are not free to make up their own regulations which are in opposition to what God has instructed. And they are never, ever entitled to require their constituents to do what is evil, either by forbidding that we do what God has instructed or by instructing that we do what God forbids. Those appointed to positions of civil authority do not have the authority to defy God, either themselves or in the policies that they create. They never ever have the authority to instruct others to disobey or to defy God. Does that make sense? No earthly authority has the authority to do that. John Calvin says this in verse 4 in his commentary. He says, quote, They are not to rule for their own interest, but for the public good. Nor are they endued with unbridled power, but what is restricted to the well-being of their subjects. In short, they are responsible to God and to men in the exercise of their power. End quote. See, to exceed the authority granted by God is, by definition, tyranny. What we have to understand at this point is that the will of God and the will of the civil magistrate, the civil authorities, are supposed to align. They're supposed to stay within their lane, but that they don't always necessarily align. Civil magistrates throughout history have commonly swerved outside of their lane. They have commonly exceeded their authority, historically speaking, And when they have, when they have imposed tyranny on their constituents, it has never one time, not even once, it has never one time been to the good of their society. It always, always leads to harm. It leads to their society's demise and downfall every single time historically. The civil magistrate, the governing authorities, are to govern in a way that protects those who do good and to punish those who do evil. What have we seen in the last year, though? Let's be honest about this. In the last year, we've seen the very opposite happen, even here within our own state. Even when our own president was calling for law and order, our governor, Jay Inslee, protected evildoers blatantly, very intentionally. And if you don't believe me, I mean, just look at how many businesses were were burned to the ground without consequence. Consider that the murder rate last year in Seattle just skyrocketed. We're we're the third highest city in the nation in terms of a, a spike in the murder rate. Consider that the lawless were protected while they were rioting. All the while, our governor was imposing restrictions on those who do good, including churches, by the way, 
that he wasn't imposing on those who were acting lawlessly. And he said that he was doing this because he didn't want to violate the First Amendment rights of the lawless to protest. Which was really great for him to say because we happen to be Protestant. I have a video clip of him saying that he is not going to do anything to interfere with the right to protest in case they ever come for us. Jay Inslee went after those who were doing good and he protected those who were doing evil. He had no problem protecting the rights of the, of the rioters and protesters, but he didn't apply the same thing to those who were doing good, did he? He didn't apply the same things to churches. Let's add all this up. A civil magistrate that protects those who do good and punishes those who are doing evil is doing what God has established it to do, designed it to do. How do we respond to that type of situation? How do we respond to a government that is governing rightly? Paul tells us in the verses that follow. Verse 5 tells us that we are to be in subjection to them as long as they're operating within the guidelines God has set, as long as they're operating in accordance with God's law. Verse 6 then tells us that we are to pay taxes. There's an unpopular one. Verse 7 gives us the principle that obligates us to do these things. Paul writes in verse 7, Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, here, we need to pay very careful attention to this because Paul, Paul's expanding this, this principle. Notice that this is just a general principle stated in verse 7, not a principle that only applies to the civil magistrate. He says, render to all what is due to them. To whom is fear due? God, for one, he's, he's way at the top of the list. He is number one, above all. Here's a question. What if a civil magistrate demands that you not fear God? What if they instruct that you not give to him what's due to him? What's due to him? Glory, honor, praise, worship, devotion, love, the list goes on and on. We are obligated in such a case. If the governor or any earthly authority says you are not to do what is due to God, you are not to give him what is due to him, we have a moral obligation in such a case to defy tyranny. A civil magistrate that punishes or restricts their constituents from doing good while protecting evildoers is a tyrant. He is to be defied. And to be clear on this, what I'm saying about our own governor, Jay Inslee, is that by definition, he is a tyrant. He has threatened and punished those who seek to honor God to whom all glory and honor are due. And he has protected those who have done great, great evil to our society. He has not governed in accordance with God's decrees. In fact, he has done the very opposite. So let me be abundantly, abundantly clear about this. Everything that we do from the moment you walk in the door till the moment you leave, everything that we do in our church services is specifically prescribed and or modeled by Scripture. Scripture sets the precedent and foundation for every single 
thing that we do here, starting with gathering on the Lord's Day. We gather because Scripture instructs us, it informs us that it is a sin to forsake gathering if we're able to do so. We, we gather because, for starters, we have dozens and dozens of one another commands in the New Testament that we can't do if we're not gathering. The moment we stop gathering, we are automatically disobeying all those one another commands. Our services align with what we believe Scripture instructs us to do. True worship relies on the instructions provided in the Bible. We are instructed to pray. We are instructed to sing, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why we sing psalms. Most churches don't do that these days. We do it because Scripture specifically instructs us to do it. We're instructed to gather an offering. We're instructed to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he returns through the taking of the Lord's Supper. We're instructed to baptize new believers. These are in no particular order. We're, We're also instructed to teach and preach the Scriptures. None of this, not a single one of these ingredients is just something that we thought, hey, you know, we should try doing this just arbitrarily. By, by our own whims and, and ideas. No, this is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. What that means, it, the regulative principle of worship dictates that we only worship as Scripture has specifically instructed. No more and no less. Nothing is left to our own whims and ideas. If something is left to our own whims and ideas, how do we know, this is one of the things that our confession says, the 1689 confession says, how do we know that it's not an idea that's inspired by the devil if it's just off the top of our own heads? We can't prove that it's not. And so we stick with what Scripture specifically says. Now tell me, Who has the authority to prevent us from doing all these things that Scripture has specifically instructed us to do? Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Only He has the authority to instruct us to cease from what He has instructed us to do in His Word. And He hasn't. He hasn't instructed us to cease. No earthly power has that authority. Jay Inslee certainly has no authority to prevent us from doing what God has instructed. And the reason we know that he doesn't have the authority to do that is because God would not instruct him to do that. He would not give that authority to Jay Inslee to stop worshiping God. The question then becomes, okay, so what if he tries? And he has, hasn't he? With a lot of those things. He's tried. What are we supposed to do? Subject ourselves to the governing authorities no matter what they tell us to do? Just kind of write them a blank check like whatever you say, we're just going along with it. That's obedience to God. No, we must defy. We must defy. It's not optional. Obedience to God is never optional. What if Jay Inslee threatens to shut us down? And he might. And this is where we go back to the principle I gave you earlier. The underground church exists because Christians have an obligation both to man and to God to defy tyranny. The underground church exists because nobody in the world 
in all of human existence has the authority to demand that God's people not gather to worship him. Do we need to go underground? Not yet. But it's entirely possible that that day is coming. I wouldn't be shocked if it happened this year. Make no mistake about it, there will still be churches, even if Jay Inslee shuts churches down, there will still be churches that are public and don't need to go underground. I mean, you can still find state-licensed churches in China. But if you want to find a church that's faithful, they must gather secretly. Those who wish to be faithful must defy, even though there's a chance that they will be punished, perhaps severely if they're caught. There's, a, there's one perfect example of tyranny. Uh, the government in China, what they do with Christians, punishing those who do good by obeying God. But there's some helpful and very interesting insight that we can gain from Daniel chapter 6. If you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 6, go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 6, there's a theme of this in the book of Daniel, of defying tyranny. You remember uh, the the three friends of Daniel were thrown into the fire because they refused to comply with an ordinance that God did not give the authorities power to invoke. In Daniel chapter 6, however, we learn that Daniel had been appointed to this, this position. There were only three commissioners, and Daniel was one of them under the king Darius, and that Daniel was becoming very influential. The king was even thinking about giving all of the authority to Daniel to govern the land. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, we we learn that the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. That's great. Great news, right? Verses 4 and 5, however, present the problem for us, the, the dilemma It says this in verses 4 and 5 of Daniel 6. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. In other words, they realize the only way that we're going to be able to take Daniel down is to get the king to try to get people to disobey God. Daniel's God. So they come up with this plan. They present it in verse 7, where they say to King Darius, All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days will be cast into the lion's den. And King Darius just goes right along with it, and signs it into law. That, there's the, the flesh right there, right? That's what natural man wants to do. Oh, nobody can worship any god or man except me. Mm. Of course a king would sign something like that into legislation. What obligation then did Daniel have to the king and to God? He had an obligation to defy the king and to worship God, to, to pray to God. 
But Darius had forbidden in this decree that Daniel obey God. So what does Daniel do? We read this in verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now his roof, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Right here is a case where the rule of a king... The rule of a civil magistrate exceeded his God-ordained authority. This is just textbook tyranny right here. And how does Daniel respond? Does he say, well, I guess if I love my neighbor, I, I just join in their, in their situation. He doesn't say, well, you know, maybe I should just concede since God did put King Darius uh, in authority over me. No, that's not what he does. Instead, he defied the tyranny of the civil magistrate. And he defied in a very blatant, explicit, public manner. Notice that he didn't even close his windows when he was worshiping God. He kept them open toward Jerusalem so that everybody could see. So that there would be no question about whether or not he was obeying. And he knelt down and prayed and worshiped God three times a day in a manner that sent a very clear message to everybody that the tyranny of the civil magistrate is to be defied when their orders contradict the commands of God. He'd been doing these things before the laws were passed, and he did not stop when the law was signed into order. Why not? Because King Darius didn't have the authority to forbid what God commands, just like he didn't have the authority to command what God forbids. And neither does our governor nor does our president, nor does the Supreme Court, nor does anyone on the face of the earth possess such authority. We, like Daniel, like the Hebrew midwives, like Rahab, like Peter and the apostles, we have a moral obligation as Christians to defy tyranny. Man, I never thought that I would see a day like this. I never thought I'd see the day when the church in America might actually have to go underground. Now you might think that's a, a, a scary thought, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibilities within our lifetimes. The government has no authority to dictate whom we worship, how we worship, why we worship, or whether we worship, because God has not given the civil magistrate the authority to do so. We are never to act as though the civil magistrate has more authority than God. Yes, we want to live quiet, peaceful lives. That is our goal as a church. That is our goal individually. We want to live quiet, peaceful lives. Yes, we want to be at peace with the state. We want to be at peace with the civil magistrate, the governor. We desire these things. We as a church have actually gone out of our way to comply with the governor's orders as best we can. But like Peter and the apostles, there does come a point where we must say, we must obey God rather than men. And anytime the civil magistrate instructs us to disobey God, that's what we must do. We must obey God rather than men. We as a church exist 
for the purpose of making disciples, gathering weekly on the Lord's day, preaching the gospel, singing his praises, worshiping God in the manner prescribed in Scripture. We do it because Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar, not Donald Trump, not Jay Inslee. Christ is the head of the church, and that's what he has commanded us to do. And don't forget what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So to that end, may God grant us grace, wisdom, courage, and sovereign protection to love him that way. To love him in a way with a a love that is just uncompromisingly obedient to do what he has instructed, regardless of the cost or consequences. We will render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we will also, make no mistake about it, we will render unto God what is God's. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us. We thank you for the consistency of it. We thank you for the vast array of subjects that are covered in it. Truly, it is sufficient. Truly, it is divine. And Lord, our desire is to bring ourselves in line with everything that your word instructs us to do. And so we pray, Lord, we pray for wisdom and courage in these times. Help us to do what your word instructs us to do. Help us to be bold when we need to be bold. All for the glory of Christ. We thank you that you sent him to redeem us. And we remember that in light of the fact that he took our sin upon himself and clothed us us in his own righteousness, that we therefore belong to him, not to ourselves. And thus we strive to yield to everything he has commanded us to do because we love him. Help us in this time, O Lord to be a light in the darkness for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. 
Take me deeper.